As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I briefly talk about the Sixers' loss to the Memphis Grizzlies before diving into the listener mailbag. Going over everything from the Sixers' optimal defensive scheme, whether they switch too much to start the season, whether P.J. Tucker should see his minutes decreased, and a whole lot more. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. You know, rather than talk about another game, because that's really all that's happened here since our last podcast. It wasn't particularly a great game. It wasn't the worst game in the world, especially after that Cavs game. It wasn't particularly a great game. So rather than talking about that, let's take a step back and open up the mailbag. But I guess real quick, any thoughts you had about that game? Because it was a, good, a game against a good opponent that you could take a little bit from, but I don't want to focus too much on that. I'm with you. I think uh, as far as losses go, it's not nearly the worst loss. It's not particularly distressing even even if there were some bad things that happened uh look the the biggest thing for memphis is they kill you on the offensive glass and they're an elite transition team both of those things you have to protect against both of those things and maybe you win the game and if the sixers did protect against those things they would have won the game but they did not and steven adams bludgeoned them on the offensive on the offensive glass and they got a bunch of easy buckets and the bench which essentially is like the non-Embiid minutes, after a week of us praising them for really holding down the fort and doing a tremendous job, uh, like being the entire team against a bunch of bad opponents, now now all they're asked (laughs) to do is just hold the fort against a good opponent, and man, can they not do that right now. I mean, just, I don't want to say they they lost all of the goodwill that they got from the past week, but they they gave a decent amount of it back. That was brutal. I mean, it was like a 15-0 run when Embiid, yeah, left at the end of the first quarter. I know we can criticize his his play. There are aspects of it, but come on. I mean, that's a joke. That's like Toronto Raptors stuff there. Yep. The bench unit uh, and then the offensive glass. I mean, Stephen Adams, you mentioned him, had 10 offensive rebounds. Just a relentless pursuit against a team that isn't always great on the glass. Uh, Embiid, I, I, I kind of wish he would have had that kind of aggressive level of play, at least on offense, against the Cavs. It is a little weird sometimes when he decides to dial up that aggressiveness. It's almost like, 
against an opponent he can overmatch. He wants to make sure that the ball is moving, moving, uh, and then against a maybe the one of the two or three players who can actually body him up, he takes that as a challenge and becomes super aggressive at times. But so if weird. I'm, if I, it's it's weird, but certainly the overall stories, the offensive glass transition and the bench, a little bit predictable. So I don't want to harp too much on it. They are playing very underhanded or un- underhanded, undermanned. It's just been tough to watch these last two games for, for very different reasons. Look, and, and they got smoked in Cleveland and that was a disaster. If they would have lost like that again, yeah, that would have been like, okay, there's there's like real concern and the effort was bad. The effort, I don't think, was terrible. Although, no. like you said, Joel, it's funny. I mean, he was their best player by a mile. He He's still passing the hell out of it. Uh there's a lot of his offensive game that uh, was pretty good in that game. But yeah, it's like you said, like I, I, I wish he was more physical against Adams because those 10 offensive rebounds Adams yeah. got, some of those are that Joel is contesting a Morant shot. And unfortunately it's a miss. And you know, one of the smaller guys or maybe two or three of the smaller guys have Adams and yep. he's a monster. And by the way, like they rebounded 37% of their misses in that game. That is a huge number, but it's not far from their normal number, 34%. So they, yeah. they are very good. You have to they give them great. some uh, some credit, and he is particularly good at that. But there were, you know, in the third quarter in particular, there was, I think it was like two or three possessions. They had ju- The Sixers had just cut the lead to six. I think Tobias Harris had just thrown down one of the best dunks of his career. <laughs> He's had a couple of those. Remember yeah. when he hurt his ankle and he came out and he had that dunk in like the third quarter, whatever? He's like, hey, I guess I feel all right. Against the Nets, yeah. yeah. He, and you know, he was making his threes, which is good, you know, good process and, and good results after kind of a cold shooting couple weeks yeah. from three for him. Yep. Good to see. He's playing well. That's that's nice. Uh, and then Joel, the, the three, he gives up, I think, three boards in two possessions that lead to Memphis yeah. threes on the second chances. And those were not he's contesting John Morant. Those are, he's like, he's just not trying and being physical hard enough, being physical enough with Steven Adams. It's a really weird game from him because on the one hand on offense, posting up, working inside. Yeah. He's, he's, he's fighting Adams. He's going at him at times defensively on the glass. He's just getting pushed around. It was a really weird game. Really weird game. It's, I mean, it's clear he, he needs to, and this is the same goes for Valanchunas whenever the hell he plays him, you know, it's probably good for the Sixers that those are the two guys that stick out to me right away. It's just like big guys who are just a good matchup for Embiid or like a good matchup for their teams Again, against yeah. Embiid yep. because they, he can't push them around to that degree. I just don't understand why sometimes when he plays those guys, just pick and roll those guys to death. Yeah. Just you can shoot over him all game long. He's giving you that. Face him up at the free throw line, drive by him, do all that shit. You are better and faster than those guys. And I, I don't know. There are some times where he's just like, all right, I'm going to post these guys to prove that. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. No, I think I don't it want, is that. I don't want to get too, uh, be too hard on him. Cause like, look, the, the rest of the team was, was bad around him. So, yeah. you know, Tobias was good and the rest of the team was either average to straight up bad. But yeah, th- that was disappointing. Whatever though. I'm, I'm not, uh, not going to be thinking about that game too much in no. three or four months. So that's whatever. All right, so I guess we'll start this off. We'll ease our way in to the mailbag with a very easy question. Um, do you guys like soccer, and are you watching the World Cup? I will let you go because I know you are the bigger soccer fan. Yep, uh, I love soccer. Yeah, it's uh, 
I don't usually tweet about it that much, but I I watch the Premier League a lot. I like Chelsea. They are my favorite team. That said, I am not a super, super diehard, you know, reading everything about it. But I, I do find the game, like, very interesting. Um, I do love the country aspect of the World Cup. And, and yes, I have been watching that as much as I can, although some of these games are too early in the morning for me. So I, I would say... There have been a lot of games that have been on at 11 and 2. I will just have those on in the background. While, I was going to ask, working. what is the Rich Hoffman definition of too early in the morning? I, I might catch the end of that 8 o'clock game, whatever okay. that is. But yeah, 8, eight o'clock is, is too early on a normal <laughs> normal day for me. So I'm yeah. a night you, owl. You, we- you, well, you are, you're a night owl on the basketball writer's um, schedule. I am a, a 9 to 5 schedule trying to fit into a basketball writer's world, which is where my struggle comes in. By midnight, I'm useless. Yeah. But no, I am. I am. I'm. I'm not a particularly big soccer fan. I have nothing against it. I just never really got into it. Uh, a big part of me for watching sports is that I play it growing up, uh, and I connect with those sports a lot more, and I get interested in those sports a lot more, and I tend to get deep into two or three or four sports rather than having a passing interest in a lot. So I did not play after maybe I think I played for like two or three years up until I was like eight. I played soccer, and frankly, I played mostly goalie. Um, but then other sports just, I had, uh, I had interest in other sports that played at that time of year and I gave it up. Um, so I didn't play much soccer. So I didn't then follow it much when it started becoming big in the United States. And I haven't jumped on in that regard. So no, I'm not a a very big soccer fan. Will I watch, like, did I watch a game against the Netherlands? Yeah. I had it on the background, but I wasn't like dying on every, every play or, you know, I'm not sitting here watching every game of the world cup. I just, and that's mostly why I don't treat I tweet about it. I don't want to come in and watch one game of soccer and pretend I have a take because, quite frankly, I don't know shit and I know that. And, you know, it's background uh, noise for me. It's a good spectator sport for a couple reasons, though. First off, it takes two hours max. Like, you you know, it's just going to take two hours. It's on in the morning a lot, too, which is good on like a Saturday or Sunday morning. You know, you wake up and you just have a game on in the background. Um, So, yeah, I... I like it a lot. I'm a I'm a big U.S. national team fan as well. Uh, I watch. I would say most of the qualifying games when I can. You know, um, I, I enjoy watching the Concacaf and do you know like in, in Concacaf, which is like Mexico, Canada, U.S., and then a lot of Central American countries. Those are hilarious because like when we play on the road against those teams, it's like crappy fields. Like yeah. you got you got crazy fans like it's like super hostile environments and it's it's very hard to play in some of those places and the games are super rough and what we do against them is we play them in like january in like minnesota in like the coldest places you can put it anywhere in the country so it's it's kind of ridiculous but uh but i enjoy it all the same and i'm excited for the next four years our team is young and they're pretty much all going to be back it seems like we do need to find a striker in one striker that's world-class worthy in this country of 350 million people, whatever the, the population is, because we do not have one right now. And that's a big deal. Yeah. No, I mean, I have, like, I, I see, I think it, uh, Kevin Kincaid of crossing broad, uh, gets into arguments with people all the time who are like, Oh, soccer is a, a bad sport, blah, blah, blah. I don't have anything against soccer. Like I said, I just never really developed a deep interest in it likely because I never played it too much. It has some similarities to basketball too, with like the angles and the passing. Well, and especially like especially that. hockey. Like my my brother sent me a a my brother's a huge hockey fan, and he he pretty much 
buys into hockey supremacy over all their sports. So he sent me a tweet of how to fix soccer. And it was like, the field's too big, shrink it. There are too many players on the, on the field. Take a few off, let players come in whenever they want rather than stopping play. And then the last one, he's like, and then put ice all over the field. <laughs> and he basically just described uh, hockey. Uh, that is my brother's take on it. No, I have nothing. I think part of the reason I probably gave up soccer is too much damn running. I don't want to spend all my day running. Like it's just. You do um, get in good shape playing it. For yeah. Sure. I'm not. Which, not a huge fan of running. Which I haven't played it for a while. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I hope uh, I hope I hope everyone enjoys their, their World Cup. I'm probably out with the USA out. But. All right, moving on to actual basketball talk. This one from Sam. Not to say that PJ should lose his starting spot right now, but do you guys think giving Yang a few more minutes and playing PJ a few less would be helpful? Maybe. I mean, he's his minutes have been down over the past yeah. week or so. He's I think over the past five or six games. He's only like averaging 20s, 22 think, right? minutes per yeah. game. And, you know, some of that is that they will give him like they gave him the second half off in Orlando. They said because of his ankle when they were up by a million points. And yeah, I mean, I, I think you even saw in the Memphis game, they just kind of sat him for a long period of time because they were like, eh, we'll, we'll roll with Niang and Tobias at the four and and see how that works. I, I would say playing Niang because that's another guy you don't want to play too many minutes. They talk yep. about that a lot. Like he, uh, Doc talks about that a lot. Like Niang, once he gets over like 25 minutes, he starts looking a little rickety. A little you know? tired. Yeah. He looks like the minivan, you know, like the, you don't want to take that odometer too high. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I think mixing. Did, did Allah give him that nickname or was that a nickname that Allah found and popularized in Philly? No, I think it was in uh, Utah. I think Utah. Was it? Okay. So somebody gave it to because I think they got the first crack at seeing sure. this very sure. unorthodox unathletic player. NBA player who <laughs> yeah. will tell you he's not that athletic and is super skilled, all those things. Um, yeah. So I, I would say the key for that I is, love every time a reporter asks him, like, oh, and you know, do you uh, do you feel like you have to get shots up? He's like, Look, if I don't get shots up, like what the hell am I doing on a basketball court? <laughs> he's very <laughs> honest about that. Yep. Very honest. He's I think he said before, he's like, Will you look at like look at me? Like, do I look <laughs> yeah. like an NBA player? And the Well, I mean, that, he is six seven, but outside of that, yeah. Yeah, there there is the the old if if he was a six two guy looking like that, that yeah, would he be, wouldn't be in the really NBA. impressive. Yeah. If, yeah. yeah. Um, so for me it's it's situational, I would say. Like PJ, you still want him to play against the bigger wings if the other team has one. I think Memphis, you know, the Sixers, they took him out of the game. That's kind of a, that's like the right team to take him out, right? You play Joel against Adams. Their best player is John Morant, who PJ won't be guarding because he's just too fast for him. That's that's a Melton matchup. And you, you kind of mix and match, but, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons. I, I don't think you want PJ's minutes to be too high. The Sixers talked about that going into the season. Like, we are not going to overtax him in terms of, of minute load. And, you know, uh, so, so I, I think there are spots that they could do it, but it, it's certainly not something I'm, uh, I'm, I think they're doing like a poor job of by any means right now. Yeah. I mean, to your point over his last five games, he's averaging 22.2 minutes. Just like you said, there was a stretch before then, um, you know, the, the Brooklyn, you know, Minnesota, Milwaukee stretch where you really needed uh, him defensively during that, but he was playing 35, 36, 37 minutes per night. That's probably a little too much, not necessarily in those specific games, but you don't want to see that as a trend because I do think you can wear him out. You know, I don't think that you necessarily have to take him out of the starting lineup. 
Uh, I know there's a lot of talk about that, but I think he's really key for what the Sixers do defensively. And, and even beyond that, like, I don't think Doc's going to bench his defense. I think Doc wants that one elite defensive player. And that is the closest thing the Sixers have in terms of a perimeter defender, uh, a stopper that Doc has at his disposal. I don't think you're going to see him benched. Yeah, in those games against Milwaukee and Brooklyn, they were matching him with Giannis and yeah. Katie's minutes. So, and, and I think you saw in that game how he can be successfully deployed in the playoffs and, you know, his worth. But yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I get it. It's it's hard to watch him offensively. I There's no argument here. Yep. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't. I, I certainly agree that you want to keep his minutes down. Not because he's undeserving of minutes. Like we've seen him get minutes on on really good teams. But I do worry about his him being fresh, which is is something that we've been talking about since they signed him. Uh, I think you can overuse him in the regular season when his value is about specific matchups in the playoffs. All right. Uh, so yes, fewer minutes, but I'm not even really coming at it from an angle of his recent struggles. Uh, all right. So moving on to Jeff Stewart. As we pass the quarter mile mark of the season. Who currently among the top six spots in the East do you think will likely end up in the play-in or out of the playoffs entirely, and who will take their place? Yeah, just looking at the standings right now, I think Indiana is the obvious one that they are going to drop out of the yeah the actual playoffs. They could be a play-in team. Their offense is they secretly have a pretty bright future with Halliburton and Matherin. <laughs> Those guys look like they're going to be pretty good. And how about a God, Halliburton, he just keeps improving to an insane degree. Yeah. Like, yeah, we don't need to go too deep on that one because there might be a couple of Sixers fans who regret that or at least want to talk about that. But yes, he is playing very good basketball. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the Sixers would tell you, though, that as that season went on, Indiana was pretty, or uh, Sacramento was pretty focused on Sabonis. But the the other thing with Halliburton is like, think about the, I guess the first summer when Ben made that trade, like what the Sixers were were kind of viewing and what the league was viewing Halliburton as. He's made two gigantic jumps yeah. since then. It's yep. crazy how uh, how good he is. So yeah, I, I yeah I, I push back on that a little bit. On I'm not I'm not even trying to say that. Uh, that people can't like long for Halliburton because he's he's very good, but uh, he he was not that level of player a couple of years ago. I think you would have had to make no, for sure. quite quite a projection there. Um, no, but they're the obvious team that would drop out, right? They their defense I I don't believe in at all, and they have a negative point differential too. I think Atlanta is another team that something about them I just don't trust. No, their offense is sneaky, not nearly as good as you expect it to be. Um, Toronto is another one. I don't, they're, they're struggling a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, their defense has been not great. Certainly not at the level that you expect, but I think they'll, I think they'll probably figure it out enough to stay in the playoffs. Washington is playing a lot better than I think almost everyone expected. Miami has been underachieving, so they could theoretically figure it out, but I, I expect Toronto to still be in the playoffs. Um, but they're, they're struggling. They're struggling. I don't know. I think for the most part, the top of the East, Boston, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Sort of who you expect the top of the East be. You expect the Sixers to then right the ship and get back up in there. Brooklyn I think the Sixers is kind will of, be top six, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I'd probably go farther and say I expect them to be top four mm -hmm. uh, injuries, notwithstanding. Outside of that, uh, I think I think you probably nailed the likely one. I think it's Indy dropping out of the playoffs if there's one team that's going to. 
Do you think Miami's going to hop back in? <sighs> they're looking old, man. They're looking a little old. Uh, they're, they're I think old, they will. And they're, they're so small, too. Yeah. I, I think they will. If I had to bet, I would bet they end up in the top six, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. Part of that is me betting against Brooklyn, though, too. I don't think Brooklyn's going to hold it together for the entire year. They've um, had a good. They've had a good couple weeks. KD's been have. awesome, obviously. They have. Uh, Miami right now. When you say they're looking old, is that because Udonis Haslam is getting minutes in the year <laughs> of our Lord, twenty twenty two? Well, he's definitely looking old, uh, both in his game and just as a human being. Um, yeah, that, that factors into it. That factors into it. What is he? What forty? How old is he now? It's like forty, I think. Yeah, forty. They put him on ice for like six years, and now they're actually <laughs> yeah. trying to play him minutes. Does he? Does he go up to Spolster and say, "I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I no, no, wanted no. to do." He's forty-two. He is so old that we stopped counting. It's just ridiculous. What? What are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing? So you go to his game log, uh, the drop down on his game log, and select by year. That's a uh, long ass list, man. That's a long ass list. That's crazy, man. He started um, playing basketball in two thousand two. NBA basketball, I mean. He played for Billy Donovan, like, his early career at Florida. <laughs> he played for Billy Donovan well before he won national championships at Florida. That's just crazy. Okay. So so I think Indy is the obvious one that'll drop out. The Sixers are the obvious one that'll probably move up. And then after that, you're guessing, right? I think Atlanta and, and Brooklyn, but one of those two is probably going to make it. You yep. know, they're probably going to avoid the play-in. So uh, I think things are, are generally shaking out how um, how they will be. And, and the biggest, I would say right now at the quarter pole of the season, the biggest difference from what I thought about in the preseason is Cleveland is clearly in that top four, and they could easily finish ahead of the Sixers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. They've been really good. Really good. All right, let's move on to, hold on, I lost my, I lost my list of questions. Where'd you go? There we go. Uh, this one from Francis Parker. Are you concerned about the Harden and Embiid fit on defense? And he says it was prompted by this quote from Joel Embiid. I think at the beginning of the year, the mistake we made was we tried to go one through five on switching a lot. You just wrote about this in your uh, in your piece that posted 10 minutes ago, which I saw. So how about you? Uh, how about you explain? Because I agree with what you wrote. I have concerns that Harden is best in a switching scheme and Embiid is not. High level, I think there's some concerns there. I think where I disagree with Embiid is I don't think it's a justification for their shitty effort to start the season. Like, I went back and I rewatched all of the, well, not all of them, all of the possession-ending events. Shot, foul drawn, assist and turnover. That Embiid was involved in as a defender in a pick and roll to start the season. They certainly switched him too much in the Boston game. But outside of that, Embiid was not in a constant one through five switching scheme. So to blame the Sixers really shitty defense over the first eight games of the season on switching, I think is misplaced. Were there at times that Embiid was switching when you wouldn't want him to? Sure. And a lot of that involved Harden. But quite frankly, if I was going to nitpick about the Sixers switches to start the season, I thought they were switching Tyrese Maxey too liberally and getting him on mismatches they could have avoided. That was my biggest problem with what they were doing switching-wise to start the season. And that's one of my big concerns. Again, you've got Harden, who's best in the switching scheme, and Maxi, who really can't switch at all. 
You combine that with Embiid, who isn't best in the switching scheme. Yeah, I think there are legitimate concerns there. But was that why they sucked at defense to start the season? No. No, I think that's an excuse. I think that's part an excuse for Embiid not being ready to start the season. I think it's part an excuse for the communication and the togetherness of the defense being shitty. I think it's a, a, a an excuse that doesn't explain why they suck so bad to start the season. So, to sort of sum it all up, yeah, Harden's best scheme defensively is not the best scheme for Maxi and Embiid. But that's not why they suck to start the season. They didn't get back on defense. No, why their transition defense the the was a disaster. They didn't have they, they they were not in good enough position to get to a switching scheme for the first eight games of the season. You can't switch when the guy's putting the ball in the basket <laughs> yes. with twenty seconds on the shot clock. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish I had that level of snark in my column today. That was the perfect way to describe it. They were not good enough to get to the point where their switching scheme would have hurt them. Yeah, look, and and I, I agree with you. I think uh, at, at a top level, yeah, it's going to be a little goofy with Harden and Embiid because that's not his best system. I I like how Joe has played, even even when we criticized his uh, his rebounding against Stephen Adams. I thought his activity level against John ja Morant in the pick and roll the other night was mm-hmm. an example of like he's doing a pretty good job there. Where and he's been doing this all not not all year. Like we talked about the first five games or so, we're we're pretty shitty. So, but in the past month, I feel like he's done a nice job of mixing up his coverages where occasionally he'll blitz. You don't want to do that that often, but but he'll do that against really good ball handlers. Often he'll be either at the level or close to the level. And sometimes he'll get into a full drop, which yes, is the default coverage and what you want him doing. Uh, I think he's done a nice job mixing up those defenses and kind of mastering the subtleties of pick and roll defense because he's right. You don't want him to switch that often. He could do it, but you, you would rather have him around the hoop. But that that's the thing. When when he said that, that comment a couple of weeks ago about switching one to five, I was thinking like, man, I don't really remember watching you no. on an island that much. The, against Tatum fans- and the Celtics, definitely. But outside of that, and even some of their really shitty defensive performances, like against the Spurs, he was in a drop the whole game, and they freaking sucked on defense. Like, they sucked. And that's something that fans and we would pick up on right away. Like, man, he's switching way too often. And that's that hasn't really happened this yeah. year, I think. And he's, but, he's repeated that twice. He said that once, I think it was after the Utah game, and then once at the conclusion of the road trip to Pompeii. And he said, uh, I just don't agree. I just don't agree. I don't agree. So maybe there is a little un- understated tension in what he says, you know? I don't know. Sure. Like I said, conceptually, I agree with him that he might have been, they might have been switching a little too much to start the season, and Harden's best scheme isn't Max or Embiid's best scheme. Conceptually, I agree with that. I just don't think it's a valid uh, excuse for what they did to start the year. I think it was way... Like, if I was running down a list of reasons they sucked on defense to start the year, you'd start off with, like, effort and communication and commitment to transition. You'd talk a little bit about maybe some rotation decisions. You know, they had Bible out to start the year, and they had... Harold largely as a backup center. So some to after getting to like, and then I get to like some switching with Maxi that I disagreed with after listing off like eight or nine bullet points. Then I'd go, yeah, you probably switched Joel and beat a couple times too often. And that hurts you a little bit, but it's nowhere near a full explanation. It's not at the top of my list. So no, I don't, but I think his, his, um, Francis's bigger question. Are there concerns about the Harden and beat fit defensively? 
and about Harden's fit with Maxi, yeah, I would I would say there's some concerns. I just don't buy Joel's excuse for the season. Anyway, from Jim. What high-variance lineups should we be evaluating? It feels like our only chance of making it to the Eastern Conference Finals is hitting on something weird. How are the limited but very real strengths of Reed, Thibel, Tucker, and Belton optimized? I think that the high-variance lineup that you want to see more is the backup units without Embiid. That's the, that's the high-variance because with Embiid, there isn't a lot of variance. Usually, they're just pretty good. Uh, so... Look, I think it's it's kind of similar to what we saw earlier in the year. Like, I want to see small ball. I want to see Tucker and Reed in a complete switching scheme, both of them as the center, and see, you know, with Harden kind of running pick and roll and all of those things and see if the Sixers can make that work. You know, I, I know that the defense was unbelievably bad with Tucker at center to start the year, but I want to see more of it. And, uh, that's the I guess that's the main thing. You know, it's it's been fu- it's been noticeable over the past couple of nights though when Doc has been searching for a lineup like after the Reed lineup got absolutely smoked in the uh at the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter of that Memphis game, he went to Tucker at center with Thibel in the game at the same time. And I I, I, I uh, there's the obvious problem of like that's yeah. two very limited offensive players. And those yeah. those lineups right now have a incredible offensive rating i'm not buying it even a tiny bit not a tiny bit yeah this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelobultra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. 
We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f***ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Yeah. Um, no, look, I mean, I think he's right that a lot of the Sixers bench players, and like bench scoring comes up a lot, and I don't really, I don't worry about bench scoring too much, but a lot of the Sixers role players and by role players, I mean anyone outside of, uh, you know, Embiid, Harden, Maxi, and Harris are very limited. And I think that concerns some people. But I don't think you, like, switch up. Like, I think you sort of want your role players to be a little bit, not limited, but you want them to be very good. Like, you want 3 and D role players. I think the Sixers built the team largely the right way. You need your stars. You need to put lineups around your stars to make them stars. And it's hard to say that because we haven't really seen all four of them on the court at all so far. Uh, I think it's, it's five games still. Um, but I don't think that like, I don't think you change your rotation to get like higher variance players in there. If that's what the question's asking, like, I don't think you throw Ferk in there just because he might drop 30 on a night. Because I think if you play five games with Ferk over say, you know, Melton, which I don't think anybody's suggesting, which says sort of like an extreme example, Melton's going to give you more four out of five nights. And I think you got to go with that. Did you see the? How about the Ferk behind the back pass oh, in the Tyus Jones's feed? It was not even close to being <laughs> available. I don't know who he was throwing the ball to. Very funny, and that kind of summed up how bad. Their, I love uh, him so much. I their, love him so much. I mean, if we, I was a coach, though, he'd drive me insane. You got Ferk with his behind the back passes. You got House with his step back jumpers on catch and yep. shoots. It's a, uh, it's a goofy kind of group. So let me ask you a question now with the, the high variance sticking this in my mind. Where does Shake fit into the rotation when everybody is back? Yeah, he's very high variance. He can be either completely forgettable or take over a game. Uh, like, I, th- in terms I think of- he's earned a spot in the rotation when everybody is oh, back. Oh, sure. Like, I think sure. he's been good enough. And yeah, against Memphis, I thought, I honestly thought he played worse than his final numbers suggested. You know, he had like he made about half of his shots, but it felt like all of his misses were no hope drives that got blocked or, you know, offensive foul type plays. I, I didn't think he picked his spots very well on the um on the offensive end. But he's earned a spot in the rotation. So do you think, you know, he plays on the backup units with Harden, with Embiid? Like like how Yeah, it's a good question. Um I think I would prioritize him with Embiid. In part because Embiid and Maxi just haven't looked great together a lot, but he can play alongside Maxi as well. Uh, yeah, I think I think I would probably pair him with Embiid just because that pick and roll play could be something that they can both build off of. But he's also had real good chemistry with Reed in pick and roll too. Uh, I think you just need more of him, quite frankly. Um, you know, the the one obvious pairing I think is you keep him in lineups without Harden, so that means almost by default he's with. Uh, with Embiid. So that's looking like 
Maxi, Melton, Milton. So that's pretty small backcourt. Yeah. Pretty small one to three. Yep. And then I, I mean, mean I think it, at this point you almost have to lean into playing really small though. Like you're 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 if you listed your six best players, certainly your top seven or eight players, you're gonna have four really short guards. Yeah, and look, Shake has longer arms. I guess he can use uh, those sometimes. He's been he's had moments where he's been a little more and Melton's a good defender on the uh, ball, regardless like, of like the off size. the ball. His attention yeah. has been a little bit better. But so, so to finish it out, though, I think that lineup would be because the other issue with that is who's the power forward? You you play with them beat on backup units, George. Yeah, and so it's like no, there's a lot of not great defenders there. Yeah, it's a lot on Joel and DeAnthony's plate there yeah. defensively. Sure, but you know what? Maybe it works. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. You're playing against backup units, so that's okay. Well, I think those those um, Maxi and Embiid lineups without Harden to start the year were real bad defensively. I think part of that was just shooting luck and shooting variance. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be good to see that later on because they did the struggle for sure. For sure. Um, all right, this one from Scott in Utah. Getting spicy. I always love it when a question starts off with his own opinion. He was very strong on this one. <laughs> This team is never going to contend with having a with Embiid having a usage rate north of 30. Uh, you know, it's his usage rate is currently a career high of 37.5%. Embiid is clearly not a talented enough of an offensive player to warrant such a high usage rate, especially versus elite teams in the playoffs where the foul baiting gimmick isn't as effective. Clearly not the biggest Embiid fan. Would you trade Embiid right now for a Gobert or Anthony Davis type return? Uh, there are several teams that would be a great fit to load the 76ers up with first round picks and quality rotation players. Scott in Utah. Well, you know what teams would not be able to load them up with uh, first round picks and quality rotation players, the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers. They don't have, I mean, the the Lakers have those 27 and 29 first round picks. They don't have any quality rotation players besides Anthony Davis and the Timberwolves just made one of the worst trades in NBA history. Probably. Probably. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, no, I, I don't agree. I don't know. Really, really not a, a fan of Embiid here. It's, I mean, look, uh, it's, look, it's sort I, of amazing. I think the, the foul baiting criticism is fair. Like, I think in the sure. playoffs, that matters. And it, it certainly more. does get tougher for Embiid in playoffs. There's no doubt about that. We've been talking about that for years. I don't think that's a skill level thing. I think that is a style of play thing. Uh, and in and, and part, having the right personnel around him thing. But if you're going to tell me that in order for the Sixers to win a championship, Embiid needs to drop his usage rate, and you know, sort of alongside of that, Maxi and Harden are succeeding enough to warrant dropping that usage rate. Okay, I agree with that. Like if you're telling me Embiid in the playoffs might be maybe not the second highest usage rate, but if Harden and Embiid or Maxi and Embiid have similar type usage rates, okay, I'm on board with that. Like distribute it more, get more coming in from the perimeter where it's a little bit easier. Um, to have that success in the playoffs. But no, I don't think the answer is trading Embiid. Like, I think people really undersell how tough it is to get a top five player in the NBA. And I'm guessing Scott, based on this one email, probably doesn't agree that Embiid is a top five player in the NBA. But even if Embiid was best utilized as a second option, who's also one of the best defenders in the world, trading him doesn't make you better. Like, getting a package like that for the Sixers right now who knows what that's going to turn into? Like, it is real tough to get a player in his prime like Embiid. It's just, I think I think people take it for granted. And I think that happens with a lot of fan bases where 
The frustrations of the team fall on a superstar and you don't understand what you have until it's gone. The grass isn't always greener. And I don't say that as trying to be an Embiid apologist. It's just we've lived in a lot of dark years in Philadelphia watching Evan Turners and trying to convince ourselves that they have a chance of watching, you know, Clarence Weatherspoon and trying to convince ourselves that he has a chance of being Barkley. I lived a lot of dark freaking years, man, in between Barkley and Iverson, and then a lot of dark years in between Iverson and Bede. Like, it's freaking tough. And were Embiid or Barkley or Iverson perfect? No. But they gave you a chance, and the Sixers have a chance. And just because they fumbled the ball with Ben Simmons and Markel Fultz, let Jimmy walk, signed Tobias to an ungodly contract, and for a long time they didn't have the perimeter talent to win alongside Embiid, just because that, I'm not giving up on Embiid. His main point, I think, is you need an offensive player better than Embiid so Embiid can be a second option. They've never had that a player capable of doing that. I don't blame Embiid for that. Well, they did for one year, and then they let him go. The uh, In the playoffs, at least. Yeah, the Sixers' offense was still a slog. But what we've seen from Jimmy in the past few years... He's, Jimmy's been incredible, for he's sure. A, that, he's a playoff killer, for sure. That team was competitive because they were a defensive juggernaut, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just, to wrap up what you said, when you trade Embiid, if you ever trade Embiid, it's going to be to rebuild and yeah, load up on picks. If the goal is to or win a title. Or because he asked out. Yeah, if the goal is to win a title um, and try and get better, I, I don't really see that path involving trading Embiid. No. And that's, I think this is a, a frustrated fan, but every now and then I think it's worth giving the lecture that don't take these guys for granted. And I think that's the main reason why I picked this, uh, picked this question to, to address. I agree. I agree that his, his offense could be better in the playoffs. Like it's, it's what's holding him back. Yeah, for sure. We've mentioned, I've, I've said before, they need an offensive player as talented as Joel Embiid, a perimeter player as talented as Joel Embiid, if they want a chance to win a championship. And they've never had that up to this point. Harden was hopefully going to be that last year, but I think what we saw from him physically was that he wasn't at a place where he, from a phys- physical standpoint, could do that. The hope is that after another offseason, he now is. There are maybe some early signs of encouragement, but I think that's still to be determined. And I think we all have rightful skepticism of whether they can win a championship if that doesn't happen. So I think, like, again, conceptually, I think there's something to his point that they need a player with a style of play that will translate offensively in the playoffs who is as good as Joel Embiid or at least close to it. But I don't think trading, trading Embiid is a way to get that. Uh, yeah. Don't, don't, don't take your superstars for granted. I think is generally pretty apt in the NBA because I think this is a, this is a very frustrating sport. Like team building in the NBA is very frustrating. It's very tough to get over that over the top. Uh, and I think superstars tend to get the brunt of some of those frustrations. Move on to something a little less doom and gloom. Last one here, and we will close it. Nope, two more. Sorry. You guys really railed against the zone in our last podcast, but isn't zone a way to keep Joel in the paint against a stretch five? Isn't that something that might make it worth giving up some contested threes? That one from Matthew. Part of the reason I railed against zone is I hate watching zone. I don't know. that That's just a stylistic thing. I have... Subscribe to the Bomani Jones zone is for cowards mantra for a long time. I don't actually mean it, but I don't know. I, I kind of do I've, a little bit. 
I, I do. I, I like watching teams play man more. And it's it's also my belief that, uh, I don't know, if you have one sharpshooter, I just remember those teams with Redick. Those teams did not have great shooting at all times, like the Jimmy teams. If you just stick Joel at the free throw line and have Redick run around and, and find open spots in that zone, I just feel like you can absolutely yeah. shred a zone. It's There's too much space to cover in the NBA. These guys are too good of shooters if you just leave them wide open. And I think... When you play a zone after a while, it is my belief anyway that guys are ready for these open threes. It's it's one thing to get an open three when the offense is driving and kicking. It's another one to know it's coming, basically, because you are uh you are playing zone. That said, is it worthwhile because of the rest uh argument that was made there? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like Doc said on back to backs that it'll give them a little bit of rest. It's a good curveball. I don't mind it on um on sideline out of bounds plays, like after timeouts, to kind of throw the other team, you know, off their game a little bit. So that that's what I would say. I would say, like, look, they're playing six, seven percent of the time zone. That's like to me, that's not crazy. I I'm not gonna be absolutely furious that they uh, that they're trying it out because I think it's like I said on the last pod too. It also shows a willingness to try stuff too. So I don't mind yeah. it. Uh, no, I mean the, the concern with. Embiid isn't so much a stretch five because there aren't as many of them as you think there are. It's a, you know, the concern with keeping Embiid in a deep drop is, um, you know, the ball handler just dribbling into a, a wide open jumper. And that's much more of what burns them by playing Embiid in a drop. And I don't think a zone necessarily fixes that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm with you. Like as a change of pace, coming out of a timeout, coming into a quarter, a game where you're struggling, a back-to-back, throw it out there and make them shoot you out of it. And once they shoot you out of it, go back to man. But I view it very much as a change of pace. You give these guys and these shooters, there's just just too many of them. You give them time to pick apart a zone, especially if they know it coming in. Like if the Sixers start playing like Miami, like you said, 32% or whatever of their zone possessions, it's not going to be as effective as it was when the Sixers surprised teams with it. And if you give teams a chance to prepare, I just think there's too much talent, too much shooting, too much ball movement. They will get open shots. And you give teams enough open shots, they will make them way too much. I mean, look, Miami uses the zone sometimes to, this, this isn't Embiid-centric, but they use it to hide their smaller players. They yeah. they stick Hero and Robinson back in the corners. You would normally think the the smaller players, that's kind of how you're taught growing up, they play the top two positions. No, in Miami, Hero plays in the back, which I think is trying to avoid you know, him getting put on an island and switched uh, like teams would do hunting him in man-to-man. So maybe it could make some sense with Harden back there doing that, but I, again, I, I just I don't think it's a, a long-term solution. If you're going to tell me they should play more zone than they did in previous years, okay. If you're going to tell me they should play a lot of zone, no, I don't. Don't want that. All right, last one here from Robin. What are the most likely scenarios regarding a hardened contract? Scary ones. It's the only answer I have. Scary scenarios. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that question is, is pretty far away. I am concerned about what that will look like and how he will age into that. But we have some time here to... Unless you really want to get into a deep dive on Harden's contract. The only thing I would say is that I'm, I'm scared about it. <laughs> We're 45 minutes in. I don't think we need a deep dive on that. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, I think most of the scenarios are not good. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man.